You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone. And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 62. This week, I would like to thank Chris and Don for becoming our first two subscribers to the podcast Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. Subscribers get access to monthly subscriber-only episodes. Subscribers also help keep this show free for everyone else to enjoy. So head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to check it out. This week, we will be discussing the mental distress suffered by soldiers during the war, and how it came by its name, shell shock. I thought that this quote from the sister of a soldier who was suffering from shell shock was an appropriate way to start. Quote, My brother, who was also in the army, went out and he got shell shock. Of course, they didn't understand anything at all about it in those days. He was put on light duty at first, and for, I should think, two and a half years, we had the most terrible life with him. I don't mean because he could help it. He couldn't help it at all. And no doctor seemed to be able to do anything with him at all. About five times a day, he'd say he was going to commit suicide. We knew he wouldn't, but he got to be watched. All the time. And he would wake up in the night screaming, and my mother would go to him and sit with him, saying, oh, I can't go back to it. It was absolutely terrifying when he woke up, screaming and screaming and screaming. Shell shock was not a new phenomenon in 1914. However, the scale of the war and the type of fighting would exacerbate the problem. We will discuss how shell shock manifested itself during the war, and how the army reacted to it, before looking at some of the tragedies of men executed for cowardice who were most likely suffering from shell shock. We will then jump into how doctors of all countries tried to treat the men arriving daily to their hospitals without any physical injuries, but obviously greatly injured. Finally, we will look at how the topic of shell shock was discussed and addressed in the post-war period. This is an interesting topic because shell shock, which is now referred to as PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, is not a solved problem. A hundred years later and soldiers still come back from serving their country irrevocably changed. The fact that servicemen and women still suffer from problems not dissimilar from those experienced by the men in the trenches gives this topic a type of applicability that is often not present in our histories. A special note on the information in our show today. 
you'll notice that most of what I discuss is almost exclusively about the British Army. This is strictly a limit to my sources. But please keep in mind that similar experiences were had by men on all fronts. And in fact, in some ways, the British had it far better than most other armies, due to the greater access to medical care. One of the reasons that shell shock became a big topic of conversation during the war was due to the expectations placed on men in early 20th century British culture, especially as it related to serving their country during wartime. Stoic endurance, dealing with pain, and stability in emotional situations were all expected from men of all classes. When the fate of their country was at stake, they were expected to be mentally unbreakable. These expectations and how well the soldiers had lived up to them in the smaller conflicts before the war made the prevalence of shell shock cases such a surprise when they started appearing in September 1914. In the early cases, the term hysterical was often used when describing the men, and the use of the word hysterical is important because of how that word was used in 1914 Britain. It was used to describe women who were unable to properly control their emotions, which was the exact opposite of what was expected of men, especially in such a great national crisis. When the first cases started to pop up, the belief was that it was nothing more than fatigue, and that after a short rest of maybe a few weeks, the men would be back at the front. The fighting had been going on for a month, and the British Army had just gotten done retreating from Mons to the Marne, so this belief made at least some sense at the time. But the problem was the cases kept coming in, and the war office turned to doctors from all over Britain and from a variety of specialties to try and figure out what was going on. The army's search for the cause, and hopefully for a cure, was driven by the desire to get men back to fighting, and if they could not be cured, at least to determine some guidelines that would let the men actually suffering from the disorders be separated from the possible malingerers that were just trying to come out of the line. The doctors were handicapped in their investigation by the fact that there was little historical data to refer to on the topic, and psychiatry was a much more niche type of medicine than what we see today. It was still new enough that a variety of investigative techniques and treatment strategies were almost endless. Also, the symptoms of the men that were, trying, that were coming back all looked completely different. Paralysis, partial paralysis, loss of sight, hearing, speech disorders, hallucinations, memory loss, night terrors, tremors, were just the start of the possible symptoms, and they often came in an endless number of combinations. The lack of common symptoms made determining a cause far more difficult. The most extreme cases were sent back to England and onto insane asylums, which at the time were not exactly known for their hospitality. At these institutions, the poor souls often deteriorated rapidly, and were past saving by the time that it was determined that they could have been helped. To further the surprise of the army leadership, these breakdowns were not just suffered by privates, but officers as well. There was a much greater strain put on officers than on ordinary soldiers, and this meant that, proportional to their numbers, officers were three times more likely to suffer from shell shock as an enlisted man. This was a problem for the army hierarchy, because officers were men selected for their aptitude and their abilities, who were given more training, and who were expected to lead their men into battle, and to retain order over them in extremely stressful situations. When officers could not be counted upon for these qualities, the effect of shell shock was just magnified. So I've been using the term shell shock a lot, but this was not a term used at the beginning of the war, it came later. 
The root of the word comes from one possible explanation of what was happening, which in some ways seems plausible. The explanation centered around the physical toll that the men were experiencing at the front. The number of artillery blasts that the men were experiencing was so drastically greater than at any point in history that the doctors began to suspect that it was causing physical damage to the soldiers' nerves and tissues. This is how they came up with the word shell shock. Their brains were being physically shocked by the explosions. This term seems to have its roots with a Dr. Myers who coined the phrase in an article for a medical journal. Dr. Myers would actually go on to become an expert on the subject. The thought that shell shock was a physical problem was soon abolished when it became clear that there were many cases where the men experiencing the problems were not even under direct shell fire when the symptoms started, and it also failed to describe why some men experienced shell shock and others did not, even if they were standing side by side during combat. Now, the French and the Germans obviously didn't use such an English word as shell shock to describe this disease, so they came up with different terms, with the German term being Kriegsneuros, and the French term being La Confusion Mentale de la Guerre. Both of these end up being closer to the mark, with the German phrase meaning literally war nervousness, and the French translating into something like war confusion. However, by the time the British had determined that it was not a physical injury, it was too late, and the word shell shock had just stuck. One of the problems with the term was that it became too popular among British soldiers, and started to be used for any kind of mental problem for soldiers. This made it lose all meaning as a descriptive term for its original purpose. It was also used by soldiers when they were knocked unconscious for any reason, which was not part of the original definition. Even as the name Shellshock was created and then found to be inaccurate, the search for the specific cause continued. Even now, the question of why the problem was so prevalent during the war continues to be asked. The root cause is generally thought to be the sheer horror of the war, and many men suffered traumatic experiences. But that still does not explain how frequent the problem was in comparison to other conflicts. One possible explanation was that trench warfare and artillery fire made the men feel almost completely helpless. They had no control over their own fate, like they would have if they were attacking with a rifle or in hand-to-hand combat. They just had to sit in the trenches, with the knowledge that each shell, which then there would be hundreds or thousands during a soldier's time in the line, could be their last, and there was absolutely nothing they could do to change it. There was also what happened to soldiers when they were hit by artillery. It wasn't a clean death of a bullet, but instead they could be blown to bits. As one French soldier put it, quote, To die from a bullet seems to be nothing. Parts of your being remain intact. But to be dismembered, torn to pieces, reduced to pulp, this is a fear that flesh cannot support. The most solid nerves cannot resist for long. End quote. Regardless of precisely why men were experiencing these mental breakdowns, the fact was that they were happening, and in staggering numbers. By the end of 1914, something like 10% of officers and 4% of enlisted men had experienced breakdowns of some form. By April 1915, almost 12,000 cases had been sent back to Britain for treatment, and during the Battle of the Somme, 16,000 more cases would be added to that number. We've talked a bit about shell shock and what it was and how it went against societal expectations, so the next step is to talk about how the army handled it. Uh, The official policy of the British Army, which was backed wholly by public opinion, 
was that if a soldier forgot his duty, it was considered cowardice and treason. The punishment for this dereliction of duty was, in some cases, death by firing squad, and that's exactly what ends up happening to a number of soldiers. Now, not all men who were executed in this method had shell shock, and the number of shell shock victims that were executed was extremely small, but it did happen. The following information comes from a book called Shot at Dawn by Julian Potowski and Julian Sykes, which goes through every military execution from the war to tell the story of the soldiers that were killed. Most of the cases involve willful desertion from the soldiers' units. The soldiers were then captured by British authorities, often dressed in civilian clothes, before being tried by court-martial and sentenced to death. The first case of a man with shell shock being tried for such an offense was in March 1915. His name was Lance Sergeant William Walton, and he was one of the original British soldiers that came over in the BEF and fought at Mons. But months later, after the Battle of Ypres, he went missing. A while later, he was detained by British authorities while showing signs of shell shock. He admitted during interrogation that he had undergone a nervous breakdown, and it was obvious that he had problems answering the simplest questions about his situation and actions. Even though he was in such a condition, it was not considered grounds for dismissal of his sentence, which, due to his desertion, was death by firing squad, a sentence that was carried out on March 23rd. The sadness of the story does not end on March 23rd, though. At this time, the British policy was to inform relatives of the men of both cause of death and also the offense. This meant that the family of Lance Sergeant Walton was told that he had been killed by a military firing squad and that he had been convicted of desertion. This is tragic, knowing what we know now, that his family would have been told that he was a deserter instead of a man who was mentally ill. The topic of telling the families of the offense was hotly debated during the war, especially later in the war. There were always instances of family notifications being softened by individuals in a show of compassion, but this was absolutely not the policy of the army. Here is a specific example of a message sent after a private of the Middlesex Regiment was killed for desertion. Quote, Sir, I am directed to inform you of a report that has been received by the War Office to the effect that number 11, 1799, Private Harris A., 11th Battalion, Middlesex Regiment, G.S., was sentenced after trial by court-martial to suffer death by being shot for desertion, and the sentence was duly executed on the 20th of March, 1916. End quote. While the story of all of these men suffering from shell shock and then executed for desertion is tragic, the men claiming to have shell shock after being caught for desertion certainly was not helping the situation at all. There are instances of men lying and trying to emulate symptoms, or really do anything to get away from the firing squad. The challenge of determining between the men who were and were not actually experiencing some symptoms was long and an imperfect process, and was, again, not strictly a British problem. On the German side, the severity of punishments experienced by soldiers suffering from shell shock was much greater than on the British side, but it wasn't that people in Germany weren't trying to change this. The neurologist Professor Gaup was one of the men who tried to alter the German view of the disease. He tried to prove that the men could have been the bravest souls in the world, but sometimes the mind just can't cope with the situation in which they find themselves. Here's a quote from the professor's article. Quote, 
The exhausted mind then feels that it is no longer master of the situation, and therefore takes refuge in disease. End quote. Regardless of the work of this doctor and others, the execution of soldiers by all armies for cowardice and desertion continued until the end of the war. In fact, the last British soldier was executed just three days before the armistice on November 11, 1918. While the army was trying to come to grips with what to do with shell shock on the front line, back in England there were whole teams of doctors trying to figure out a way to help the men whose minds seemed to be broken. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. When the number of men affected by shell shock grew to numbers that were too large to handle in France, they were sent back to England. Unfortunately, there were no special facilities waiting for them when they arrived, and so they were dispersed to all kinds of establishments. Some went to hospitals, some went to insane asylums, some lucky officers were sent to compassionate volunteers' homes to recover. They were really all over the place. The army brought in doctors from all over England to examine and experiment on the men. Those that were successful grew to be quite popular with the army. In Shell Shock, the Psychological Impact of a War, Wendy Holden talks about why the army was so concerned. Quote, The army's sudden interest in the new methods was not entirely altruistic. With no armistice in sight and conscription bringing fresh blood into the war machine, a new concern was looming. The government was panicking over how much money it was going to have to pay out in pensions after the war if these men didn't get better. Doctors whose wages were being paid by the military, and who were already under pressure to get the men back to the front, were made aware that they now had an additional function, to cure those with no hope of going back, or to organize their discharge so they could be no longer be a burden on government resources. End quote. 
The ideas that the doctors came up with were all over the place. Some of the doctors tried to provide the opposite of what was experienced at the front, which meant a lot of peace, quiet, and relaxation, often in the countryside. Then on the other end of the spectrum was electroshock therapy. Some of the doctors went a bit too far with electroshock treatments. There was one doctor that used several minutes of electroshock on any paralyzed limbs until the paralysis left. Then if the paralysis moved to other parts of the body, which sometimes happened, he would chase it all around the body if he had to. The sad thing about the entire situation was that oftentimes the electroshock therapy was seemingly more successful than the more humane methods of treatment. However, there are very few records of what happened to the men who got better by this electroshock treatment. It is completely possible they just didn't want to get shocked anymore. All of these treatments, the good and the bad, were administered in England, and this is how it stayed for a good portion of the war. However, there was a big change in the last two years of the war on how British troops were treated for shell shock. This change was the movement of treatment closer to the front lines, much closer, all the way to regimental aid posts that were often within hearing distance of the guns. Another key change to the treatment that was that throughout the process at the aid stations, men were both kept in military dress and were kept to military discipline standards. Upon arrival, the men would be separated into groups based on the severity of their illness. The more mild cases would be kept at the aid station for a few weeks, and if they did not improve, then they would be sent down the line. However, if they did improve, and more of them did, they were sent back to their units. This change in the location of the treatment was a big breakthrough for British doctors. The recovery rate for men improved dramatically, and most of that seems to be attributed to where and how the men were treated. They were treated like soldiers instead of like patients. Dr. Myers, the same one that had coined the term shell shock, also summarized the new method of treatment with the acronym PIE, which stands for Proximity, Immediacy, and Expectations, which is all that we have discussed. The PIE method is still the basic model for treatment for PTSD to this day. While these advances were being made in the later stages of the war, the end of the war did not mean the end of the discussion about shell shock and what its continued effects on the soldiers meant for society. The total cost of the war in terms of men suffering from shell shock was huge. The British seemed to have reported the numbers quite low in the official records according to some of the sources that I've read, but since 1918 a good estimate has come to around 200,000 men. There were more suffered by France and Germany, of course, with the Germans recording over 600,000 cases of disorders of the nerves. But the discrepancy in the numbers probably just comes down to the number of soldiers involved in the fighting for the duration of the war. These numbers, of course, are a drop in the bucket to total casualties for the war. But when the war ended, these men were not magically cured of their illness. With the rules of the time, each man who was injured during the war was entitled to an army pension after the fighting ended. And after the war ended, the total amount that was being paid out to in England in pensions was about £10 million sterling each year. Now, it's of course difficult to exactly convert money over the course of a century, but it's likely that this is somewhere in the range of a billion modern, mo- modern day British pounds or 1.3 billion euros, or 1.45 billion US dollars, according to current exchange rates. So if the conversion is even sort of accurate, that's a lot of money, especially for a cash-strapped British government. 
Because of this outlay of money on a yearly basis, a committee was created in 1920 by Lord Southborough. During his opening address, he would say, quote, The subject of shell shock cannot be referred to with any pleasure. All would desire to forget it, to forget the role of insanity, suicide, and death, to bury our recollection of the horrible disorder, and to keep on the surface nothing but the cherished memory of those men who were victim to its malignity. But, my lords, we cannot do this, because a great number of cases of those who suffer from shell shock and its allied disorders are still in our hands, and they deserve our sympathy and care. End quote. For the next two years, the committee would discuss the topic of shell shock, and it would come to the following conclusions. The best way to prevent this from occurring in the future was to increase training, leadership, and discipline. That the army should stick with the pie method of treatment in the future. And that it should be made, to, made clear to all soldiers that the loss of nerves would not be a free pass to allow them to not do their duty. So, the end result of this committee was that when the British entered World War II in 1939, its regulations in regards to shell shock was actually more stringent than what they had been at the end of the war in 1918. The disciplinary responses from the army were increased, and most importantly, the possibility of pensions for those suffering from shock were removed. Essentially, the men were treated more like deserters than wounded. In Germany, the situation for soldiers after 1918 was even worse. After their nation lost the war, the German people began to blame the traumatized men. They pointed to their weakness as the reason that Germany lost the war. This anger and resentment made those soldiers, already broken by the war, social outcasts. So while in some ways the medical treatment of shell shock and other mental problems during the war represented a step forward, in other ways it resulted in a step back and a recognition of the disease, but a placement of blame on the soldiers themselves. As I mentioned last week, I will be making a book recommendation with every episode this year, and this week that book is Shell Shock: The Psychological Impact of War by Wendy Holden. This book is a great resource if you want to learn about shell shock and how armies have reacted to it in the 20th century. Unlike most of the, of the forthcoming book recommendations that cover strictly the period between 1914 and 1918, this book spends just the first third of its length on the events of the First World War, before moving on to summarize how shell shock and later PTSD was treated for the rest of the century. It does a great job of giving both the history of the disease as well as how much we still don't understand about its true nature. Next week, we begin our many-part story on the Great Battle of Verdun. On the hills around Verdun, on the banks of the Meuse, men would be tested as they had never been tested so far in the war, and as they in many ways would not be tested in the future. It is this battle that would define the war for the French and German soldiers and nations, and it was absolutely critical to the outcome of the war. So I hope you will join me next week for episode 63, The Battle of Verdun, part 1.